0: Did you start writing this when COVID hit? Yeah. Is that right? So you, you started it last year and, and got it out by the end of the year.
1: I had it finished when I was allowed to open the door.
0: Really? Wow. Ten okay. weeks okay. later. Okay.
1: And uh, yeah. I sent it to an editor. I okay. sent him 298 pages mm-hmm. and it came back 268 pages. Mm-hmm. He was proof positive that why use one word? When 10 mm-hmm. will do is a bad is a bad idea. He cleaned it up beautifully.
0: Exploring Chiropractic Episode 55, Chiropractic Odyssey with Dr. Leonard Fay. Welcome back to Exploring Chiropractic. I'm Dr. Nathan Cashin. If you happen to follow me on YouTube, you may have seen my recent video discussing a few of the books that I've been reading. I've become increasingly interested in biographies of the chiropractors who have paved the way for the current generation of students and doctors. In this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Leonard Fay, who brought the dynamic model of motion palpation to the forefront. His recent autobiography, Chiropractic Odyssey, details his journey through practice, including learning from revered manual therapists throughout Europe, founding educational institutions, in reading and applying scientific research. We have a great but comprehensive conversation, and so I've taken the time to break down this conversation into chapters, which you can find on most podcast players, so that if uh, you don't have the time to listen to the full hour and 20 minute interview, you can pick the topics that most appeal to you and take a look at the show notes for more resources and information, including a link to his recently published ebook. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Leonard Fay. How did you originally become interested in chiropractic? Chiropractic?
1: Well, when I was 16 and I was quite an athlete at the time, I uh, contracted rheumatic fever and the polyarthritis. All my joints swelled and I was in bed for three months, never touched the floor. And the MD, after three months, said to my dad, you know, Leonard's not doing well. He's lost 50 pounds and 42% 42% of kids with this die, and 85% have serious heart trouble. So immediately after the MD left, he, uh, my dad phoned a chiropractor who was up the street who came down with a portable table, and he adjusted my upper thoracics. And uh, the next morning, I was, my joints were half as swollen. And by the end of the week, when the MD came back in, he took my blood again. He couldn't believe that I was actually walking to the bathroom and back. And uh, he found out that my sed rate had gone from 47 down to eight, which was normal for that uh, scale. So he he said, whatever's happened, uh, you're you're better, you're gonna be fine. So uh, I made a recovery and decided to go to chiropractic college and found out when I got there with my senior matriculation, which was one year after high school to prepare you for university. And I had prepared for, uh, engineering. So I had a science preparation. I found out that out of the hundred students, only 10 of us actually had university entrance requirements. So, uh, That should have warned me a little bit what was to come, but I had great physiology, anatomy, uh, human dissection. The basic sciences were fabulous, but the technique every day, two hours, hearing all these people with different explanations, upper cervical had one, basic Logan had another. I mean, it was just all over the shop, and they all had this concept of universal intelligence coming to innate intelligence that controlled the life force of our body. And uh, at the time, I understood that uh, to be science, you had to be able to falsify a statement. And these were unfalsifiable statements. And therefore, uh, it put them in the realm of religion. And I didn't go to chiropractic college to learn a religion. I went to learn But my understanding of science also was that science was attempting to explain phenomena. So somebody uh, saw that apples fell to the ground and Newton decided he'd figure out why. And so that became a scientific fact. And everything else in science was somebody observed a phenomena and then figured out how it happened. So I figured that nobody had really figured out what chiropractic was doing. I would learn the skills because I wanted to help people, but I knew that I had a job after I graduated to find out what was going on.
0: It's so interesting to me that you had, you know, such a life-changing experience, but it wasn't through the filter of the philosophy. And so you had yeah. this more curiosity and science-based uh, approach just saying, okay, I know that this happened to me. I w- now I want to explain how, but it wasn't, I don't want to say tarnished, but it wasn't Fluenced given to you beforehand to think that it was a philosophical, a metaphysical reason. You look at things through this li- lens of science and you mentioned in the book that you started the habit of reading the research an hour a day, and you you invested a lot into learning. Um, yes. You mentioned at, at one point that you spend 1,500 pounds on textbooks, on scientific textbooks. What is the value of reading for you?
1: Well, like I said, uh, I was trying to figure out what we were doing, and I Uh, was appointed to a committee that was going to form a curriculum for the Anglo-European Chiropractic College. And we had three years to prepare the the, uh, curriculum. And I knew that the students coming would have a baccalaureate minimum. So they would be aware of what science was. And uh, there was no way I could get up and tell them about a subluxation. And the classic... uh, Definition of a subluxation. So my chore was, and that's why I went up to uh, London and a huge six story high medical bookstore and bought all the books that I thought would give me a clue as to what I was doing. And then I formed that uh, heuristic model that I called a subluxation complex, but it didn't exist it was just a model for, for uh, studying what we needed to study. And that was, we needed to become experts at manipulation. We needed to know the neurobiological mechanisms that were affected by manipulation. We needed to understand soft tissue component of what we were doing. And uh, inflammation, you couldn't adjust inflammation. So we had to know how to deal with inflammation. And then there was this overall stress component because I had read Selye's Stress of Life. Now, I didn't read his lay book, Stress of Life. I read the 600-page uh, book about all his experiments called Stress. And it, it was uh, from McGill University where he had 100 postgraduate students. And they were trying to figure out what stress physiology was and what stress pathophysiology was. And uh, he got a lot of answers. So that made me realize that uh, prognosis is very dependent on whether or not a patient is in stress pathophysiology or whether they have normal stress responses and so that's why I put it in as a fifth component of this holistic uh, heuristic model.
0: What did that early practice of of reading, you, you mentioned you had three years to prepare the curriculum for AECC. Yeah. Uh, at the time, you were also in private practice in England, right? I
1: was, yes.
0: Did you wake up? early in the morning? Did you read throughout the day? I'm, I'm always curious how, yeah. you know, people I, fit in time I had a to part- study.
1: Yeah, I had a partner and we worked three days a week each and we saw uh, maybe 80 patients a day because there were only 37 chiropractors in the whole of England. So in my area, Southampton had a population of two or three million around within five miles of the office. And uh, it wasn't very difficult to to get extremely busy. And you got to remember, at that stage, I was wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Two lumbar rolls, a couple of thoracic cracks, and two cricks of your neck, and out you went. And and that actually got some results. And uh, people were, we, we saw 16 or 20 new patients a week. Wow, you mentioned
0: that you had you know the eighty patients a day between the between the two of you five dollars per each of you
1: it was eighty each no one a day one doctor worked Monday Wednesday Friday the other worked Tuesday Thursday Saturday so I had Monday Wednesday Friday to study or Tuesday Thursday Saturday and it was five dollars so in in that economy back in the sixties that was really really. Professional income. So yeah,
0: you mentioned the the average income was twenty pounds a week in London.
1: We, overheads were about fifty percent, so it took eight patients to cover the overheads. <laughs> it's
0: Amazing to hear that. From yeah. you know, I'm still w- within five years of graduation, and and so hearing what it was like your first few years of practice yeah. uh, is really intriguing. And you mentioned also that you started practicing in Canada. Um, right did. after graduating from CMCC. What took you to England? It sounds like it was an easy decision. An offer yeah. came to cover someone's clinic and, okay, sure, let's yeah. move across the, <laughs> the Atlantic Ocean.
1: Yeah. Well, I went to a little town in northern Ontario called Huntsville. Then the chiropractor's father graduated in 1920. And so he Uh, Curry graduated about 1952 or three, one of the first graduating classes from CMCC. And he was really, really good at taking x-rays and reading them. And so I, I went there, I knew him, uh, through a friend and, uh, he wanted to expand down to a little town south of his little town. And so, uh, I got a job, $60 a week, to work as an associate. And uh, his practice was so general. I mean, babies came in with eczema and asthma. and Women came in with mastitis and you name it and it came through the door. So after a year, I had met somebody And we were sort of engaged. And she had been from Ireland and England. And uh, when I finished in Huntsville, I went down to the chiropractic college and my classmate happened to phone while I was there. And the receptionist knew that I knew him really well. And she said, Dr. Skinner's on the phone. Would you speak to him? And so Jim said to me, He was uh, in a practice as an associate and had three more months to fill. But where he was going to go to Bournemouth, the chiropractor had a serious illness and had to quit practice. So he was going to have to leave Guildford and go down to Bournemouth. And he was looking for somebody who could come for three months and take his his job over. And we had been trained in upper cervical palmer specific. It was one of the, the courses for the two hours a day that happened. So I was able to go there. And uh, when I told my girlfriend at the time, she said, oh, I'd love to go back to England. And so that was easy decision. I got a uh, two weeks later, I was on the Queen Mary and on my way to England. Uh, it was very interesting. And you know from the book, my story of being in that practice, Hmm. Uh, that was interesting. But I already knew, you know, they still don't teach chiropractic students that there's three ways patients get better. And the therapeutic that we do is one way, but Placebo is another way. And then there's a natural history. Things get better on their own. And even though we weren't taught that, the dean used to say, some people get better in spite of what you do, not because of what you do. So I I had that little bit in the back of my mind before I found out about the three ways we get better. So,
0: and you tell the story of the, the x-rays that you would take, and a little yeah. experiment that you conducted.
1: I put the marker on the wrong side. So,
0: Which is what you used to determine where to adjust.
1: Yeah, they, they measured ASRP, anterior superior on the right posterior, right, or whatever. And so the side meant a lot to them. But I knew damn well it was just mobilization of the upper cervical region. And it's a really good way to mobilize the upper cervical region is to have a drop headpiece and do a recoil adjustment. Super fast and incredibly zeroed in on the upper cervical, three atlas occiput joint and atlas axis joints. They all get manipulated. It doesn't matter what side you're on.
0: I can't imagine the, the guts you had to do that type of experiment. It certainly wouldn't go over today, I don't think, but um, yeah, but it it was eye-opening.
1: Yeah, it was. And you remember, I'm on a mission to find out what the hell we're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was able to do it.
0: And being in England, of course, brought you closer to uh, to being able to spend time with some of your other mentors and influences, uh, Vladimir Yanda, uh, uh, is it Gillette or
1: Gillet? Gillet. And the Swiss chiropractors were even more, uh, instrumental in getting me to read.
0: Hmm. How so, so?
1: Well, they had a five day symposium every fall. And, uh, when this five star hotel closed, they left it open for one week for chiropractors from all over Europe to come to this symposium. And that, that happened because the guy that owned the hotel was in a wheelchair and a chiropractor in Switzerland got him walking again. So as a, a reward, he gave us half price in a five-star hotel, which was a magnificent. It was on top of a mountain and it looked out over the the, the uh, Lake Geneva. And it was just unbelievable. And uh, so that's how I got. Now, to be a chiropractor in Switzerland, right from the get-go, you had to have a Bachelor of Science degree. So they would come to America, sit through all those bullshit classes, but... Learn the anatomy and the physiology and the biochemistry and everything else. Learn to do the manipulations, but would go back to Switzerland and they had a, a you couldn't get your license till you practiced for six months to a year with an, somebody already in the association. And they would then re indoctrinate you into your dealing with joint dysfunction not bones out of place. You're dealing with inflammatory conditions. And so I was hearing all this uh, approach, but they hadn't actually put it together into a model. They would just individually stand up and tell about uh, gestalt uh, learning and uh, the psychological effects that Dr. uh Oh, I forget his name. And there was one one doctor was really good at examination, an orthopedic examination. And where I went to college, we were looking for subluxations because they caused everything, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, I was being introduced to orthopedic tests and Syriacs. And so, obviously, I bought his book when I went to and. Uh, I was just hearing from people that understood science how to go about doing our job. So that was a huge influence. And then Gile, I was in Belgium at a European Chiropractic Union convention, and uh, Ille showed all these motion X-ray studies. I mean, once you see the spine move, it, it just turns on a light bulb. And why students to this day are not showing motion x-ray studies of the spine? And uh, then Gile got up the next day and said, look, I know Ili's work. And I've, along with Dr. Likens, figured out how to palpate those restrictions. Now, it turns out he over exaggerate how accurate it is. But Being in the ballpark is close enough clinically, because Dr. Kim Ross and Stuart McGill, they wrote a paper about how general and that manipulation couldn't be specific anyways. It always involves three or four motion units. So then it clicked to me why motion palpation is so damn clinically significant because it puts us in the ballpark close enough that when we do a manipulation and, and it affect three or four motion units, we affect what's, what's significant. So uh, the fact that it wasn't uh, motion palpation wasn't that accurate is how colleges got an excuse to not teach it. And so... They made it uh, made sure the students know that I was in fairyland doing this motion palpation, and that whatever you do, don't listen to him because it's not a scientific fact, right? But uh, as I say to people today, you don't see a micrometer on a building site. You see metal rulers that come out of a – and being within an eighth of an inch is, is good enough.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But that wouldn't be good enough in a machine shop. Right. you got to be to a thousandths, right? And so they're, they're discrediting motion palpation because it's not accurate and it's not uh, reliable. And an inter-examiner reliability is poor. But the funny thing is, those people I trained that actually did it in practice ended up with huge practices because of the results they were getting. No sales pitching, just results.
0: It's interesting that you confronted you this pushback from both sides of the profession, actually, as you're mentioning now those who said that that motion palpation is not supported by the evidence and therefore not scientific enough yeah but then you were banned from speaking at the more vitalistic schools for dismissing the concept of subluxation absolutely um and and using a more evidence yeah. informed um way to to palpate yeah. and to adjust
1: i believe that you have to not only have an rct evidence or evidence-based, but you should be also looking at the basic science facts and and marrying those into your treatment plans, such as Davis Law. Were you surprised when you read Davis Law in the book?
0: Remind me of that.
1: It's a corollary of uh, Wolf's Law. Mm-hmm. And Wolf's Law says bones adapt to the stresses on them. So a left-handed tennis player has a radius and ulna that's much bigger than their right radius and ulna because that's where the stress is, right? And uh, soft tissues, joints, ligaments, capsular ligaments, tendons, muscles, they all... Reduced down to the restriction of the joint range of motion. And if you don't put that application, first of all, get the joint motion established. So there's affrontation. And then you use your exercises and stretches long enough, not four or five times and send the patient home. You got to do it long enough to work Davis law. And the, that's not even mentioned in chiropractic colleges. Mm-hmm. I take somebody 70 years old that can't move their neck, that has degenerative changes in their cervical spine, and I spend a year and they end up looking out the back of their car and backing it up and looking at the ceiling again and, and their circulation to their brain improves and all kinds of good things happen. They can expand their chest because of the movement of the costal transverse joints, so they get more oxygenation, and all kinds of good things happen. But that takes months and months and months, and I just feel that a lot of people who are stuck on RCTs and rehab, they really don't understand Davis Law. They understand it from weight training and that muscles, Mm -hmm. you have to get muscles to fail. But they don't seem to understand it, that a manipulation has to address the rotations around the three axes in those directions. Otherwise, there's no failure of that ligament that makes it want to become longer. And it will. Davis Law says... They become stronger, thicker, and longer. That's a real key to getting busy.
0: It's a challenge that I find myself thinking about quite a bit is reconciling the evidence or really the lack of evidence for many of the things that are seen in practice with the personal experience. For example, I was uh, an athlete and a dancer And, you know, I would have a a rib out, you know, rib dysfunction that would make it difficult for me to rotate as I needed to. And with one manipulation that could be resolved and then I could, I would restore range of motion. And so I certainly have had those experiences and yet we don't have, as far as I know, there aren't great studies that even show that we can restore range of motion to that extent. So I'm curious how you think of reconciling these different sides of your mind.
1: Ted Carrick wrote a paper about increasing range of motion back in the 80s. And uh, that was the only paper that I know of. Then Adrian Grice used to take lateral bending x-rays And he would show that uh, when L4-5 or L3-4, especially L3-4, didn't open the eight degrees of lateral flexion, L2-3 would open up 14 degrees, became hypermobile, right? And then Ruth Jackson in her book, The Cervical Syndrome, also showed that she could predict because of these joints that didn't function, then causing hypermobility above, she could show and predict the degenerative changes of the disc. Have you read that book?
0: I haven't. It's, it's on my list. Yes. <laughs> my extensive I mean, Amazon list.
1: So then, accepting what I visually saw from Illy, where joints didn't move, and then he showed after treatment which was manipulation plus therapy machines that created movement. He had people pedaling a bicycle where the pedals went eccentric in all sorts of axes. And so their hips and spine had to adapt to all these literally gyrations. And then when they're symptom-free and he felt they were moving properly, he redid the motion x-ray studies. And all of a sudden, this spine that was slightly curved and moved with jerky movements was straighter and moved with normal flexibility. So I saw it visually in 62. I read about it in the 80s through Carrick's paper, and I was practicing it. And I had people telling me that when they adjusted the upper thoracics only, The hypermobilities in the cervical spine, six or eight months later, that hypermobility of five or six millimeters slip anterolithesis wasn't there anymore. And I would write back and say, look, you got to do a case study. Please get that published. But nobody published anything. And I know I, I tried to publish a paper three years ago. And I had uh, Brian Budgel, a neurologist, uh, to do the neurology part of the paper. And it took us two years with so many denials. JMPT denied it. Spine denied it. There was even a, a book called Itch, a journal called Itch. <clears throat> and this was a pruritus paper and they even refused <coughs> to publish it. It finally got published in the Canadian Chiropractic Journal, which is a refereed journal. So it's in the, uh, the database now. If somebody looks up pruritus and what's the treatment, it's the only paper that suggests there's a treatment manipulation of the thoracic and cervical spine, right? Do <laughs> you think that ever gets mentioned? No. Nobody reads it. I send it to everybody.
0: I hear you mention the the Cervical Syndrome book quite a bit. And you, you note in your book that you've often been criticized that you refer to these references that now are 20, 30, 40 years old. Yeah. But you still find value in them. I do. Why is that? Because you also mentioned that the green books are not necessarily worthwhile.
1: Yeah. Well, they weren't science, were they? I mean, they were talking about nonsense. But Erwin Kaur was a Ph.D. Uh, I think he was a neurophysiologist, and he was hired by the osteopaths. And he's the one that uh, researched into facilitation of the sympathetic nervous system. And so I read his book, and it's an old text, but uh, I think his name is Anderson, has taken on his work. And uh, Selye's work was taken on by uh, a professor at, oh gosh, up in Northern California. And uh, so I, I've kind of followed what they're doing. And Brian Budgel's one of them, uh, Stephen I. Unfortunately, Stephen I. got his research to the point where they were doing. Uh, clinical patients, symptom patients, and uh, measuring the uh, norepinephrine and the other chemicals of facilitated sympathetics. And uh, unfortunately, CMCC had a flood and all their computers were flooded and he lost all his uh, data, which is really sad because it was years and years of data. And I don't know why they didn't have it backed up, but I guess the backup got flooded too, or something. But uh, so that goes. But uh, now we've got uh, the uh, brain research.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned Heidi havok and
1: yeah, and um, so she's almost to the point where she never mentions subluxation anymore. I think her. Her college in New Zealand was really into the subluxation Palmer model. And so I I think she worked with them or for them. But when you actually hear her speak, she talks about changing the dynamic function of the motion unit. And it's not because the bone's out of place. It's because she changes the function. Mm -hmm. And she measures the affrontation that goes on up in the brain when they uh make these manipulations and get the reafferentation going. Then she measures the response from the the brain and the neuroplastic responses. They're finding that these chronic pain neuroplastic changes do are reversible if you get rid of the pain. And so as you read in my book, I stick with a patient on a monthly basis once I get them out of pain to make sure they stay out of pain for at least six months. Mm -hmm. Why would I let them come back in and out of pain? And the World Health Organization just recently, about a year ago, published that back pain is episodal. That's the nature of back pain. It comes and goes. And to become chronic which means it doesn't go, Heidi is showing that, and other neuroplastic people in a book. uh, I'm trying to think of the book. All these references are in my book, but Mm -hmm. uh, the neuroplastic changes of chronic pain were, were, were shown by neuroplastic researchers at the start that there was a chronic spot and that when they got rid of the pain, eventually after six or eight months, that spot reversed. So it's neuroplastic to develop and it's neuroplastic to get rid of. And I think to me, that's that's uh, evidence. I know it's not evidence from an RCT point of view, but I'm very familiar with uh, the research at, rand and i know that they've they've abandoned the rct model for chiropractic mm-hmm. we do too much and you can't isolate one thing and say oh cervical manipulations no damn good for headaches well that's not what i do so it's comparing to me that's apples and oranges i never adjust anybody's neck until i have the upper thoracics gliding anterior in cervical extension, <clears throat> laterally bending in cervical rotation. So if you just do cervical manipulation for headaches, you're going to get a lousy result, in my opinion, and you're going to then make a false conclusion that manipulation isn't that great for migraine headaches. Well, it is great if you include the upper thoracics and effect the sympathetic ganglion chain from its source. Now, why do I think the ganglion chain's involved? Because when I palpate and stress upper thoracically, patients start to perspire. That, to me, is a sign of sympathetic facilitation, right? And let's face it, when people get stressed, they have to go and talk, and they've never talked before a large audience, what do they do? Their hands start to perspire. They get sweaty. Right? It's a sign of sympathetics. And if you're not exhibiting in your sympathetically facilitated patients the sweat response, then you don't know where to go. Right? Because when you get to where that facilitation is coming from, they sweat. Then when your skin roll over that, there's a positive skin roll test. And if you use a pin on the right and left side, beside T1, T2, T3, it'll be hyperesthetic where the, the sweating came from. So I get three signs, sub-objective signs, and then I adjust them there not their neck until that stop. That sweat response stops, and then I go to their neck. There's usually a quarter of left of what I found originally in their neck.
0: So help me understand because I've I've heard different things on this. Um, you mentioned that palpating the thoracic stimulates the sympathetic response, and is your if it's goal
1: facilitated already?
0: If it's not, already facilitated.
1: Yeah, not if the patient doesn't need, hasn't got facilitation.
0: And is your goal with the manipulation then to uh, decrease that sympathetic stimulation?
1: Absolutely.
0: Because I've heard that the adjustment can both stimulate and reduce the sympathetic. Oh, they uh, get
1: a reaction. When you first adjust them and they're already facilitated at T2-3, say... They're going to feel worse because you're going to be irritating where they're already stimulated. That's why they sweat. But within two or three hours, they're going to get a a real fatigue. So I tell them, shut your eyes and lie down. Don't fight it. That's how we heal in our sleep. And that's a great reaction. If they get worse, you're definitely at the right spot. And I don't. So there's know an why. acute
0: response, but then over time, you will reduce that the sensitivity of the. Each sympathetic time system. they
1: come in, there's less and less sweating. The pin becomes less and less hyperesthetic. Right? Uh, the doorbell sign if C five six are involved at. Inflexion and A to P rotation, it doorbells into the arm and shoulder, down onto the chest, into the back, into the scapula. That sign becomes less and less. Right.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: So I have evidence with Bruce Jackson, with core, with the neuroplasticity, with this and that, and that, to me, becomes an evidence-influenced treatment. I don't think we can just go with evidence-based practice. There's not enough evidence to explain what these results are that we all used to get. To me, that there's a lack of them being fed the right information, the right evidence, right? And that evidence has to be Basic science books, basic science observations, as well as RCTs, and we can't drop the very reason patients came to us, and then the fact that they don't treat things that we can't cure. What kind of a doctor only treats what he he can cure? It's certainly not a medical doctor. Right. They're trying mm-hmm. to give people a quality of life. Right? They don't cure diabetes, but they sure help a diabetic. It's fantastic what they do. Right? And so I have patients that have uh, chronic conditions that I can't cure. But with the, the benefit of their MD knowing that I'm not trying to cure them because I write a letter. And I say that I can help this patient's quality of life if I do and get their spine moving. They'll be much more comfortable in their wheelchair. They'll be much more comfortable sitting in at home and they'll be able to walk better and they'll be able to do all kinds of things better. Why are we losing that? And this all makes you super busy and you get a, you get a uh, professional income. How are we going to survive as a profession when really bright people find out you're making 50000 a year? Nobody's going to spend four years or three, 36 months, $200,000 to make 50000 a year. That's the reality. I don't care how patient-oriented you are. You still have to make a professional income. hmm my question is: Can you do it ethically? All right? I think I can do it ethically, but how I can How do
0: you approach that with with your patients um, when you know you're you're providing an adjustment for a condition that you know, there aren't randomized control trials for, but you've seen it happen in practice or you've seen good results? Yeah. How do you approach that discussion with the patient?
1: Okay, you have. Let's say a patient that I saw 17 years ago with uh, ankylosing spondylitis just starting. And I said to him, I can't cure ankylosing spondylitis, but I can prevent your joints from being immobile and you looking at the floor in 20 years from now. How do I know that? I know because joints respond to movement. And that ankylosing spondylitis shuts down the movement. And that's why your joints degenerate and everything gets into a mess. Now, he already had lipping and spurring starting, right? So he he was able to afford it. And he came in twice a week. We're now 17 years later, and he's upright, turning his head, going to work, enjoying himself. He dances every Sunday at a club, a dance club, right? Now, he's been paying me twice a week for 17 years. Was it worth it? Absolutely. The other day, he saw somebody walking along the street looking at the sidewalk. He said, you know, I think I saw what you were. I said, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. ankylosing spondylitis. That's what you've got. When we take a a re-x-ray, he went on to Medicare, so we had to show that he had ankylosing spondylitis. And sure enough, all the spurs were bigger and everything. I mean, it looked like classic ankylosing spondylitis. But he was walking around like he didn't have it,
0: mm.
1: and I know a lot would be shocked. But Medicare paid for those treatments, really. Yeah, that
0: was my next question: is are you uh, are you billing insurance for most of these?
1: I don't patients? bill insurance, but I bill Medicare, mm. right? And I've had a c- few conversations with uh, adjusters and. One adjuster said, but he's got ankylosing spondylitis. And I said, yeah, that's rods, probably a $400,000 surgery. Uh, or you can pay me Medicare price, 38 whatever it was. He pays for his uh, stimulation that I use. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, yeah, it's a pretty good deal, isn't it? And I said, well, he's already... <laughs> I think he went on at 65. It's already, he's already 65 and he's still upright. You phone any orthopedic surgeon that deals with ankylosing spondylitis, and they'll tell you they're already clicked over or they've already had their surgery. right. That's the truth. That's the natural history of that condition. Now, how did I explain that to him? Well, like all the others, I say to them, do you slowly want to get worse or do you slowly want to get better? Because both both are slow. So when a professor from the university was retiring, he was 72 years old, and he couldn't back his car up, and his neck was so fixed he couldn't even read for very long, and he sure hated looking at his computer. I said, I have experience of treating people twice a week for six or eight months and then weekly for another six months, and you'll end up being fully mobile. Now, you can either choose that or you can choose slowly getting worse and worse. So they'd make a choice. And some of them say, well, I can't afford it, and I'll say, well... Medicare probably won't pay for this, but I'll do a deal and I give them a reduced rate. Medicare fees. My normal rate is 95 to $120 per visit. I'm a cash practice. However, mm-hmm. I, will, I take Medicare patients because I'm a Medicare patient, right? And uh, so I think it would be hypocritical to not accept Medicare patients. But I only charge if, if there's something that Medicare won't pay for. I charge them the Medicare fee. And I, I'm in adjacent to Beverly Hills. People around me have a lot more money than mm-hmm. so. I can understand that question, but I don't understand, not understanding that repeating, 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 putting a demand on ligaments tissues around the joints by the manipulation process. I start out at the atlas occiput because that's rarely involved. I go to the feet. I start getting their feet to move, their knees. Their hips are usually restricted, so I do a little work there. And then I go to the mid thoracics. And I every visit I do an area or something that I think will pull them along into becoming more mobile. But you have to have and understand the concept that we're dealing with a locomotor chain of joints that all interconnect and compensate for each other. So you can't just adjust the spine if you want to change the spine. You have to adjust the closed kinematic chain dysfunction And that concept is still not taught at chiropractic colleges, and we're still doing RCTs that don't take that into consideration. Why aren't hip joint dysfunction, early osteoarthritis, with a very positive Faber test, why aren't they excluded from low back pain RCTs? We already have the research that 25% of low back pain patients have restriction in their hip joints. So if you're not dealing with the hip joints and you're trying to do some other therapy to prove whether or not it helps low back pain, to me it's it's completely ludicrous. You have no chance. And then you come to a conclusion that chiropractic adjusting of the lumbar spine is no benefit or slightly better than physiotherapy or uh, acupuncture or whatever they've also compared it with. Of course, we're equal to all those if we don't deal with those that have dysfunctional hips, those that have dysfunctional foot and ankle. How many chiropractors test the rotation of the tib, fib, in the mortis joint at the ankle? Not Many. I've trained a few. But that is a huge mechano disruptor of the spine. If you can't rotate at the Tib Fib in the mortise joint, you're going to change the whole way in which your lumbar spine and pelvis react. And so you can see why I wasn't accepted by the upper cervical ICA colleges. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got mm-hmm. onto to this in 1962 or 63, and I was teaching chiropractors why they had to examine all the joints, not just the spine. So all the gurus with their little technique systems, they were against me. And the colleges came to the conclusion that the best way to get rid of me was to class me as a guru. with just another system, right? And they hated the fact that I had references. So they never told the students about references. And then we formed MPI Mm -hmm. and tried to introduce references.
0: Dr. Faye, I want to revisit your your teaching of manipulation and motion palpation when you started the program with AECC, um, as well as teaching the seminars in and teaching at uh, CMCC later on. And you mentioned that it was very important to you to create a curriculum in which you revisited the skills that had previously been taught through the, yeah. uh, the previous years. Right. Tell me more about the importance of repetition.
1: Okay. So before I taught, one of the, uh, the books I bought was about teaching psychomotor skills. And, of course, it had chapters on learning psychomotor skills. It came apparent that when I learned a technique, we did upper cervical. And then we did the thoracics. And the next semester, we did the lumbars. And the next semester, we did sacroiliacs. And the next semester, we did... And nobody ever went back to upper cervical or thoracics, or lumbar. So when we hit the clinic, we had touched on everything, but we didn't know how to do anything. And when I read these books, I found out why. We hadn't had the repetition of the first things that we learned that we did every class. And so I built in. I always taught a palpation that went with a manipulation. I was taught manipulations, not when to use them or how to use them or where they came in the clinical practice. But if I taught the cuboid movement, I learned. I taught people how to palpate, whether the cuboid could articulate with the fifth and whether it articulated with the tib, uh, navicular and whether it so. – And they would feel those three articulations. And where it blocked, it hurt. And then I taught them the maneuver to free up that cuboid. And then the next time they came in, they did the cuboid palpation manipulation before I taught them one other palpation and manipulation. So for the whole four years... Cervical spine, upper cervical, lumbars, whatever. We had two hour classes. By the third year, it would take an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes to get through all that they had learned. But they got to do it every damn time. Well, they got good at doing it, right? Because they were, they knew. And if they weren't any good, I pulled them aside and put them with somebody else that knew, didn't know how to do it. And I would have remedial for them, right? And then I would teach the others the new move, the new palpation and go back and and get them. And eventually when we hit the clinic at the beginning of their middle of their third year, the student clinic, they were pretty good adjusters and palpators, right? And then when they got into the senior clinic, and saw outside patients, they were definitely good. So they saw results. And I I was the clinic director to start with. And so I made them do treatment plans that were realistic. So they got used to the idea of looking at a patient and saying, you know what, this is gonna take three or four months. Right? And when you're out of pain, don't stop coming because we have to get normal motion reestablished. And pain is influencing your motion. You're adapting to the pain. So we have to get rid of the pain, and then we have to get things to function well again. And then we have to exercise and stretch you so that you get back to normal. Well, they had that model. Well, they all got super busy. That clinic was flying. Mm-hmm. When I went to CMCC in 75 and became a clinician, I wasn't head of the clinic, I found out that they were struggling like hell to get patients. They never got referrals. It, the mm-hmm. referrals came to the college, not to the doctor. So I took them aside, and I, I had chats with them, and we started to get so they got referrals because I started to get them to feel what the patient's problem was so that the patient could feel it and not have to understand it. If you're trying to get them to understand what you're doing, you got no chance because their brother, their sister, their uncle's an MD, a dentist, mm-hmm. a nurse, something, who says to them, well, that's a lot of shit. Huh? Well, it isn't because... My patients know that they felt what was wrong. It's so important. And these clickers and these units and everything, they don't want the patient to know that, right? I wrote a book called Goodbye Back Pain. It's mm-hmm. for lay people. And it explains how to self-diagnose whether you're a disc or a facet syndrome or a muscle or torn ligament or whatever, right? Pati- chiropractors hated it because they all had different concepts of what, wrong, what was wrong with the patient. Upper cervical practitioners knew that it was their upper cervical before the patient even arrived.
0: <laughs> the, right.
1: the SOT people knew that they, they couldn't sway the right way, right? So they knew what was wrong. Most of these systems know what's wrong with the patient before they get in the door. And I was teaching chiropractors how to do an ortho-neuro exam, which included palpation of the function of joints in the directions of the rotations that were dysfunctional. So, Then the argument became, well, you can't palpate two millimeters of rotation. Well, I'm not palpating two millimeters of rotation. Of course I can't. But I can tell whether it's blocked or not. Mm -hmm. I know whether it's restricted or whether it just swings around the way it should. There's nobody can't tell that. If I gave you a brick and a piece of brie cheese and told you to squeeze the brick (laughs) and squeeze the brie cheese you would know the difference. Uh, There's just been a recent study where they use a machine to tell whether or not we can feel the resistance in the thoracic spine with the patient Mm -hmm. lying on the table. Well, I don't palpate patients lying on the table. They're sitting. So there's no resistance on the sternum. Uh, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I'm rotating them in all the different directions and flexing them and Moving them around, so you can't compare that machine that's picking up extension with a patient lying prone, with the resistance of the table coming back at the rib cage, and then say we can't palpate restriction. Where, do, when does research not include comparing apples and apples? Right. Mm -hmm. When did that happen, that that got discarded? When you compare apples and oranges and make a conclusion that includes apples and oranges, I don't believe it. I was very lucky. CMCC had professors from McMaster University come and spend two days with us on how to read research. I'd already been reading it for many years, but I, I had the a classic training of a professor who went through how do you determine if this paper is worth quoting or not right? and that was one of the things does the conclusion is it what the conc- the paper did mm-hmm. right Oh, that's so many papers make false conclusions. <laughs> you read the
0: data, and then their conclusion is completely opposite yeah, to
1: what the data say. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. right? And unfortunately, that's going on. And unless we do pragmatic studies where we're allowed to talk to the patient, massage the patient, put therapy on the patient, use soft tissue techniques... Graston, whatever, fashion manipulation, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Give them exercises and stretches. Unless all that is included, it's it's useless coming to a conclusion. Because that's what we do.
0: Right. All right, right. And then you have to parse out, okay, which of those many things that we do is the one that really had... You know, the biggest effect or, or you know. Oh, can who you- wants
1: the biggest effect? I want the overall effect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Parsing it out will give you false conclusions. You know, there was a drug. My next door neighbor was an MD in, in England. And he said to me one day, you know, we found we give people these drugs. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So we really examined the ones that it worked on, and they were all taking aspirin as well. Mm. So we came to the conclusion when they then did a study, they found out that aspirin facilitated the drug, and the two are now prescribed together, not apart. So parsing out (coughs) the drug, wasn't any good. It takes the two. Well, maybe it takes the, all these things that we do. Right. We talk positive. We have a positive attitude for what we're doing. That has an effect. The placebo effect is very determined by how positive the, the doctor is. <clears throat> you know, there's, it's too big a question to answer with an RCT.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take some time. Um, but, but I certainly appreciate your, you know, um, the amount of importance that you place on, on reading the research and paying attention to it. I did want to ask one a little bit more specific as we're talking about, um, psychomotor skills and, and learning manipulation and drilling. I'm sure you've seen videos of, of these, uh, different groups online and you see them standing in a circle and drilling. What are your thoughts on drilling manipulations in that way?
1: Well, first of all, the impulse thrust that I teach is a couple of millimeters Mm -hmm. and the ninja thrust. They go way to, they go way past. (laughs) Yeah. So they'll (laughs) get a, they'll get an audible release but they'll get a patient that has to recover from the manipulation.
0: I've wondered about that because I see them, when I do see them adjust, they're not, sometimes they do kind of a follow through. But yeah. but they're not. When they actually adjust, it's, it is very small. But yeah, the drills they do tend to be fairly yeah. uh, a high amplitude.
1: I describe the thrust as a cough. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's that fast. Or picking an apple, right? You take the tension out of the stem and then you pick it. You don't pull it all down to your waist each time. It's just a little pick. And since the adjustment gap is two or three millimeters, if we can palpate before we thrust that we're at the end range and there's only a couple of millimeters to be achieved, But it stopped before its full range of motion. So there's that range plus the gap. So that impulse that we do, just impulse, is enough. And patients say to me, oh, I've never had such a smooth adjustment. The last guy I went to nearly killed me, right? He cranked my head around and he, well, you don't have to do that. And... uh, you can get the, the gap. And that gap is so important when it makes a noise because of the affrontation that's created. And Sato mm-hmm. did that research. And right. he he found out that the affrontation is way more when you get an audible release as opposed to a mobilization. And that's probably why physiotherapists never could equal our results, because they took people through stretches but never actually added the impulse. And uh, so there's so much in that book <laughs> that we could talk about.
0: There is and I want, just to mention. There's so many things that we haven't covered in the yeah. biography that yeah. that are really interesting. Uh, you drop nuggets throughout for um, clinical, practice. especially for. for Clinical practice for for even the the business and the marketing side of it. You yeah. know, little things that you've done along the way. I mean, you were doing a monthly newsletter before email newsletters were the thing. Yeah. Um, and how to schedule a busy practice, uh, yeah. how to send out referral letters to MDs, uh, and then I really enjoyed uh, the the chapter that I think I need to visit was the chapter on what you call my truths, and you yeah. lay out these these kind of fundamental things that um that you. Th- believe, which you think subconsciously control your behavior in practice. And you yeah. lay out, you know, very, um, clear, uh, um, principles that you follow that, that yeah. influence your practice and explain the origins of those, where those influences came yeah. from. Um, and that is a very highly referenced chapter that I think I'll need to go through, and and dig up a lot of those references to read through.
1: The reason I did that chapter was that I wanted the reader to look at his own truths and to write Mm -hmm. them out and see whether or not it was an enough truth to make him a busy enough practitioner to, to demand as a reward, a professional income because I believe that a lot of the, belief systems that are uh, present in new graduates' minds is stopping them from becoming what they really should be in society. So the history of that is a a chiropractor came to me who has a degree in uh, psychology. And... uh, Two or three visits, I found subluxation, we'll call it that, the restriction of his upper cervical spine that was causing him to have headaches. It just came back. Every time he came in, it was exactly the same. So now I'm saying to myself, what's causing this? And I, just from experience, I palpated under his jaw and I hit a spot just about sent him through the roof.
0: Hmm.
1: And I said, you've got an abscess in a tooth. And he said, oh, I said, and it's causing you, I'm not going to adjust you today, but you go to a dentist and get an x-ray and get that attended to, and then come back and we'll see how you are. Well, he did, and he did have an abscess, and he got a root canal and whatever. And he came back, and his neck was already 60, 70% more mobile. I did a little Mm -hmm. manipulation, and uh, he was fine. So he came back the second time, and he said to me, How in the hell do you know when to do this and when to do that? He said, I know how. You have certain truths, and they, they, Uh, control your behavior and would you do me a favor and sit down and write out what you think you believe about chiropractic and why right so I did and that's kind of what started me on I got to get this into a text Mm -hmm. and then I I was closed for 10 weeks And I got up the first morning. I thought, what am I going to do with myself? (laughs) And then I thought, well, you know, I really need to explain my trip in chiropractic. Mm -hmm. Because the modern graduates, nobody tells them what I found out. And that's not in their truths. They don't even get to reject them. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care whether you, you read the, I care whether you read the references. I don't care if you come to the same conclusions. You have to get your own truths. Right? That's why I'm not a guru. I've always told people, go and read this and go and read that. Right? Don't follow me. Don't believe me. Just read this stuff and see what your conclusions are. And so I, that's the list. Of my truths, right?
0: I appreciate at the end you mentioned, kind of wrapping this up. That the art of a manual therapist requires the mastery of many skills, and philosophy requires discussion in which we rarely participate collectively. And we have the right to our own beliefs, but we do not have the right to make up our own facts. Yeah,
1: isn't that lovely?
0: I love that. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. That philosophy whether you're talking about, uh, you know, the divisions between the profession or simply this, uh, these attempts to reconcile the evidence with clinical experience. Yeah. It does require some discussion and I don't think we do discuss it enough. No. Um, I think we, we, you know, put our stakes in the ground and we try to defend our positions exactly, and, uh, and you're right. We have the right to our own beliefs, but we don't have the right to make up our own facts. But I think we need to be yeah. willing and able to disclose these facts and these, um, these beliefs that we have that influence us mm. to be able to understand one another and to be able to progress uh, as a profession.
1: And the Voltaire quote at the beginning, beware, admire the man that seeks the truth beware of the man that's found it, <laughs> right? That's the first page of the book. By the way, uh, that same uh, doctor who had that degree, it got me to do my truce. I said to him, you know, one of my problems is that I have to quote myself and I have to send people to read my own book, watch mm-hmm. my own videos, and it comes across as selling." That's yeah. sales pitch. And uh, he said, "Well, look, you you're you're the expert in this." <laughs> if somebody's giving a scientific paper, they have to say, "Read my paper." Right? Yeah. And uh, so unfortunately it's a catch 22. I have to say to people listening to this, "Please read Chiropractic Odyssey." a journey of practice, seminars, observation, and reading science. You found it a very interesting and stimulating book, and it made you think, and that's all the book is designed to do, make you question what you're doing and be sure that what you're doing is your potential.
0: Let people know where can they find the book.
1: Yeah, it's at Chiropractic chiropracticmentor.com. Dot .com, chiropracticmentor.com,
0: and there you also have your uh, your membership course, which is a collection of um, DVD videos teaching manipulation skills. I've, yeah. I've at, joined that. I've been at at looking at that, that, that same, as well.
1: Yeah, at that same site as mm-hmm. uh, videos of how to palpate and do spinal mm-hmm. and extremity manipulation. It's so cheap. I made it so cheap that <laughs> nobody who spent two hundred thousand dollars to become a chiropractor can't afford twelve dollars and ninety-five cents a month, right?
0: For the full for the full set, right? You yeah. have a few options. Yeah. Seven ninety-five for for one Just, part of it, which is yeah. even more affordable. So I'll leave it for people to find. Uh, the book is chiropractic, Odyssey, uh, available at chiropracticmentor.com. Dr. Leonard Fay, thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom on this call.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure, and there's nothing I like better than talking to people that want to hear what I have to say. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Exploring Chiropractic. After this conversation with Dr. Leonard Fay, I asked him about whether he planned to publish his memoir as an ebook. I am a millennial who likes digital convenience, after all. I'm also into shiny new apps, so when he said he had planned to but hadn't made progress, I offered to help out. It was a really fun experience. I used Papers 3 with Vellum to make sure the 60-plus scientific references he included were easily accessible with just a couple taps from internet-connected devices. Yeah, I said I'm a nerd. The story is really great, too. As we touched on in this episode, he provides lots of clinical gems and practice-building nuggets throughout, even if it does make me weep for the low cost of tuition in the 60s. Chiropractic Odyssey, a journey of practice, seminars, observation, and reading science with Forward foreword by Jan Hartvigsen is available on Amazon Kindle now. Head to the link in the show notes to get your copy. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you in the next episode.